you know, I, this is this is one of those times that every teacher can tell you um, where it's like, oh, you just wish if everyone picked one Sunday school to come to, it was like this one. And unfortunately, it's like the exact opposite. And I knew that would be the case last night. I was like, you know, people are going to be cooking in the morning because people don't have power. And, and, and Sunday school is going to be a ghost, uh, a ghost camp. However, that is not your problem. And so we, we are going to move through this material because it is wonderful. Um, and uh, you, need, you need to hear it. And it's going to actually coincide with the sermon. And I didn't plan that. Just in the providence of God is how it turned out. But we are going to see union with Christ in the sermon, one of the only times John explicitly mentions what is regularly considered to be a Pauline doctrine. And so it's actually going to overlap beautifully with some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. So it will be everyone else's great misfortune to not have been able to hear some of these things, uh, but we're going to go ahead and dive in. Let me pray for us, and we will get going. Lord Jesus, uh, Thank you for being merciful to our church um, in these violent storms last night. We're thankful um, that is as far, at least as far as I am aware, uh, there, there was no injury. There was no significant uh, damage or loss of property even. Um, but there were people, obviously, who were affected. And at least a handful of people who lost their lives. And so we pray that you would be merciful. We pray that churches all around Nashville would mobilize to serve those who are in need and who are perhaps still without power in cold weather. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that, that this city would be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who are hurting and suffering, um, who have lost homes. And we pray that as we have opportunity that we could help in that cause. And so as we look at union with Christ and restoring the image of God, we pray that you would help us to feel the weight and the value of this, to see how awesome of a story that you have woven in redemptive history. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last time, I'm going to be sipping my coffee a little bit more because my, my throat is dry. Last time we uh, closed our discussion of union with Christ and justification, and today I want to turn to union with Christ and the glorious image. The glorious image is the second thing that we'll talk about related to union with Christ. Remember, we've laid out kind of the groundwork of our series, and then the first kind of element we talked about how what union with Christ really affects is justification. Next here is the image of the, the glorious image, the glorious image of God. Um, we talked about the union with Christ brings us into contact, as it were, with glory, with Christ. Uh, and we're going to talk today about restoring the image of God so that one day we will be like him. And Recall, I'm just going to put some of these texts up here, that man and woman are created in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth. Every creeping thing that creeps 
on the earth. The idea of an image in an ancient Near East, as we've already discussed, would be someone who is something of a representative of God on earth, a, a, a vice regent, you might say, ruling uh, representationally, ruling by, uh, yeah, by being a steward, by being a custodian of a higher rule. And so this is seems to be how human beings are fashioned, and there's discussion about whether you know, the image of God, like what exactly is it, you know? Is it this ontological thing that's printed on us, or is it primarily a functional role that we're to rule and subdue and be these uh, creator, uh, I'm sorry, uh, created kings on earth and rule and reign, have dominion? And the reality is it really is, I think, in, they're inseparable from the two, because in order to do either, to, to, to order exercise, to order, in order to exercise any of the properties you might have in a godly way, that would allow you uh, to say that we were made in the image in some ontological sense. You would need to rule and reign according to how God had said. But yet, if you are to rule and reign functionally, you've got to have some capacities to be able to discern good from evil, for example, to think. And so we are created in God's image. But as a result of Adam's sin, which set mankind apart from all other parts of I said that backwards. The image of God sets man apart from every other part of creation. Okay? Angels, for example, are never said to be made the image of God. There are some theologians who assert that, but there's, there's no one else, there's nothing else that's said to be made in the image of God. However, as a result of Adam's sin, the image, this thing that is bound up in ruling and reigning and exercising and subduing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying is marred. It is marred significantly. We see evil. We see murderous hearts. We see sexual immorality. We do not see obedience to what God has said, what God told Adam. But critically, unlike Martin Luther thought, the image of God has not been lost entirely. It's been marred, but it's not been lost entirely. Otherwise, you would not be able to explain... Sorry, I didn't finish reading that. There it is. You would not be able to explain why the same principle in the image of God shows back up in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood if the image of God was lost. It is, in fact, the image of God that Moses appeals to here to talk about uh, proportionate justice, particularly leading, even up to shedding man's blood. This would not make sense if there was no such thing as the image any longer. Does that make sense? The image was gone because of sin. It wouldn't make sense that he would use it as part of his reasoning in this principle of proportionate justice. Okay? And so as we move along in the story, we get the prohibition against the images of God in the second commandment, particularly that you should not serve them. Whoever sheds the blood, I'm sorry, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. But this image language here should remind us of the garden. Okay, this image language to anyone, any Israelite reading this is like, wait a second, an image. Okay, well, they would have known what images were. 
after all, they're, they're about to fashion one themselves in a couple of, couple of chapters, tragically. They were aware, but whenever you hear this image language, it should take us back to the garden. And the idea is that God has already made images of himself. God has already made images of himself, physical representatives, you and I. The images have already been made. Okay, The images of God have already been made. Therefore, we do not have the prerogative to make images of God. We do not have the prerogative to shape something after God's likeness, whatever we would even determine that to mean. But the problem is you and I botched it. But just because we botched it doesn't mean we can go about making more images. It's important to remember, okay, when we read the second commandment there. It's an important layer that can't be passed over. So we have mankind made in God's image, crafted after this glorious, this perfect likeness. And we have that, we've had that deeply tarnished, but not eliminated, Genesis 9, by the fall. And then we received the prohibition against making anything physical that would pretend to represent God, as he has already created us to be doing that. Does that make sense? The images have already been created. You and I, we messed it up. No more images. Do not make unto me an image. That sets the stage for the New Testament. That sets the stage for Jesus, who is, if you will recall, the image of God. After receive, being made in the image, okay, having the image tarnished but still around, and after having a prohibition against images, because images have already been born of God, been made by God, all of a sudden we read this amazing passage in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. That would take everyone back to the second commandment, to the garden. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Does that sound like, does that, does you hear like the garden language there? Created, creation, power, rule, subdue, authority. On earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Again, I want you to notice that rule and reign kind of, that, that there's authority language here. There's creation language here. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3a. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Greek word here is character. Character. What word do you think we get from that? Uh, cl oh, cl uh, whew, that's a really good... Now I was thinking a character. Yeah, but because it's a representation of something. Yeah. Those are, I didn't even, that was a really good answer, but that's actually not correct. That's not what I was thinking anyways. Uh, but character, yeah. Someone who is a representation of something else. Someone who's representing somebody. 
And furthermore, in talking to whom, talk, not talking to whom, but talking about those to whom the gospel is veiled and who are perishing, Paul writes of Jesus, in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay? So Christ is the image of God. Very clearly in the New Testament. He is an image. And I want to just point out again how closely the image of God language is associated with glory. Explicitly in these, particularly in these last two. Okay? The image of God is very closely connected with glory. That's why I call this the restoration of the glorious image of God. And I was preparing to teach this. I was actually, honestly, a little bit astonished uh, at how closely these two things are associated. So often, glory and the image appear uh, together. And so Christ, in a sense, as I've said before, is, is a kind of divinely brought forth violation of the second commandment. He is. He is the firstborn of God, and yet he is the image of God. Um, but obviously, there's a tremendous difference. It's not really a violation of anything at all. Um, what, 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 what would you say? What, I mean, what are some important differences? What might you say? Is, what, are, what are some reasons where to say that a, a, a second commandment violation is a rhetorical flourish? It doesn't really have teeth, but there's something to think about there. But, but what's different in the case of Christ? What do you think? He's okay, so he isn't he isn't crafted by man, he's not shaped by man, correct? Any what else? You might think, well, he's actually a person and not a thing. He's not wood, he's not metal. And then this the, most importantly, you might think he is actually a perfect representation of the nature of God. Okay? So he's not created, he's not fashioned with human hands, he's not some immaterial matter, and unlike us, he is a perfect representation of the nature of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The, the, listen, the, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God himself. And so having said that, we can't miss this. That the only two appropriate images of God that have ever existed were both brought forth by God. Mankind, Jesus Christ. Now maybe we're going to... Maybe there's a relationship here. Maybe there's a tie. Maybe there's a tie between... Uh, between these two images that God brought forth. What's the relationship between the two in light of union with Christ? That the only two appropriate images of God ever made are mankind and Jesus. It's also important, before I go on, to say this. That Jesus Christ was in the image of God or was the image of God, excuse me, 
um, by virtue of taking on mankind, right? Taking on human nature. In other words, it's important that Jesus is, is not said to be the exact imprint of his nature because Jesus appeared in a cloud of glory or wrote his name in the sky or something like that. In other words, there's something very important about Christ being the image of God because he was a man. He was not certainly not merely a man, but he was in fact a man. He was part of the category mankind who bore the image. The difference is he's not merely man, and so he is able to bear it perfectly. That's what I would suggest to you. He did, Christ was everything that you and I were supposed to be as the last Adam, that we failed to be. So he has this image, yes, but he is the perfect image. He is the perfect image. He succeeds where we did not in image-bearing flesh. So now I want so that's kind of the foundation. I want to take us into the text and see how the image of God with the connection between these only two things that are called images appropriately in the scripture and how Christ as the second Adam as an image re restores the image of God in virtue of union with Christ. Okay? But before I do that, is there any questions about this part so far? No, so in one sense, correct, but notice, particularly the first, um, he is the image of the invisible God. What I'm suggesting is that um, it's talking not about just God the Son abstractly being divine, yeah. right? It's talking about the incarnate Jesus. That's what Paul's reflecting on. Yeah, one of the. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. That's a good question. Like what? What, what the? Yeah, I'm not sure. The fourth man there in the fire. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly God appeared to His people in many ways. Um, but but again, when we have the image of Jesus, you are right to say it's not solely about. Uh, him having flesh as an image bearer, but because the, even the image for us is not simply about a particular constituency. It's about a function to rule, to reign, and to have dominion. But here, Paul isn't talking about the, uh, you know, the eternal, in, you know, in son of God. He is talking about Jesus specifically as he's been revealed in the, as he's come in the flesh. Does that make sense? And so it is important that part of Jesus being the image of God is that he images God. He is the visible version. He visibilizes God. Like John says, he's been made manifest. God has been made manifest in the flesh by Jesus. John, first, first John uh, chapter 1. Okay? Really good question. Any other questions before we continue on? Okay. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, um, it's worth 
reading these things and looking at them so you're not just being kind of told a theology of restoring the image of God, but you actually see why anyone would ever believe that. Let's start in verse 35. The context here explicitly is the resurrection. And Paul asks kind of this imaginary interlocutor, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. That's what I say to people when they ask me questions, by the way. What a foolish question. No, I'm kidding. Please come ask me questions. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And by the, so we're dipping into, by the way, last we're dipping into last week as well. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, life, uh, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I already talked a little bit about that was. I'll say something more about that in a second. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And then the money verse, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the end game. Bearing the image of the man of heaven. We already have one image. It's marred. The larger project is we're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. First of all, there's a couple points here. Notice the connection to glory. Verses 40 through 41, the glory of the heavenly bodies. Verse 43, especially, excuse me, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. All right? So I told you the glory language shows up when we're talking about the image. It shows up right here again. Notice how the future resurrection is the larger context of the whole passage, the dead being raised. We already talked about the relationship of union with Christ and resurrection. We already talked about the relationship between union with Christ and resurrection. As Christ is raised, so also shall we be raised. Paul's multifaceted answer to his own question involves clarifying that Jesus is, in fact, the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam who became in his res resurrection a life-giving spirit. Now, I talked about this a couple times, I can't remember how many weeks ago, we talked about Christ becoming a life-giving spirit, a phenomenal, very amazing-sounding verse. We're going to see something like it in 2 Corinthians 3. I'm not suggesting that God the Son became God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity became the third person of the Trinity. That's not it. But that he, he was raised by the power of the Spirit, that's the nature of the spiritual body. It doesn't mean that what's coming is a wispy, Casper the Friendly Ghost version uh, uh, body. 
right? That's not it. That's not the spiritual body. That was, it was sown this body, a natural body, raised a spiritual body. That is to say, just because of how Paul uses this exact word, this is not a body that is wispy or something. It is a body that is empowered by and transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Christ when he was justified, 1 Timothy 3.16, by the Spirit in his resurrection, this spiritual body that is to say this Spirit-empowered body such that Christ operates in our lives through the Spirit of Christ. Okay, He became a life-giving Spirit. That is how He, in fact, operates in our lives. The payload, again, comes in verse 49. The program that is laid out for Christians. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, there's another image that we will bear, but, but not yet. We're not there yet. It's being restored, but we're not there. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, we get this overarching program from image 1 to image 2. That's, that's the game plan, okay? Second text, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Okay. Oh, wait, you know what? Do I have this up here? Let me see. Oh, I have the, the I have 49 up there. But also, I don't want to skip over this. I think I have this in the notes. Yes. Romans 8.29, usually the one that everyone appeals to for like their justification for election or something. But everyone seems to miss this part of it. Right? 1 Corinthians 15 gives us this overarching story that one day we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. But guess what? It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8.29. You're not just predestined abstractly, he said. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Image language. Of course, the next, next verse talks about being glorified. Glory language shows back up. Always seems to be associated with glory. Okay? We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the project. A project of image restoration. A project for image restoration. Now, having said that, Colossians 3. And starting in verse 1, Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, we have our union with Christ language, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears... When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Glory. The glory language. Oh, I just always seem to show up. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is, is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
having put on the new self. And now we have a process. The first two, we have a game plan. Here we have a process. What is happening? We have put on the new self, and it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Knowledge not understood as learning more facts, but knowing God, and therefore reflecting God. The image that's lost is being renewed into the image of God. Image that was marred is the language is, is the image that is being restored. We have the union with Christ language, very prominent here, the glory prominent here. We have the presence of the future prominent here. And then after again this reality we get the imperative towards holiness uh, that started if you've been raised with Christ, okay? Then we get verses 5 through 10. So we get the union with Christ peace. If this is true about you, if you've been raised up with Christ, live this kind of life. Why? Because you are being renewed. The image of God is being renewed in you in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay? And again, I'm suggesting here that the restoration project of the image of God is the theological underpinnings of sanctification. Have you ever thought of sanctification as image restoration? I'm suggesting that the theological underpinnings for sanctification in terms of this progressive part, I mean, being set apart in one sense, certainly, there's, there is a, a, a one-time sanctification, but this idea of progressively becoming what I have already been declared to be, I would suggest to you is a project in the renewal of the image of God in us. Okay? Now, let's look at one last verse together. One last passage together. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This one is perhaps the most explicit out of all of them, and is a passage that everyone should be familiar with for a wide variety of reasons. You're going to see glory here. You're going to see a model of sanctification here. You're going to see Christ here. You're going to see the image here. You're going to see the process here. This is a loaded, this is a loaded passage for us. I'm going to start in verse 7. Now, Paul says, if the ministry of death carved on in letters of stone. He's talking about the Old Covenant. That's obviously a very, refer, very obvious reference to the Ten Commandments. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's saying, listen, if, if, the, if what was meant to pass away and what could be considered a ministry of death because it couldn't give life, was able to produce enough glory such that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, again, this inescapable language of glory. For if there was glory, verse 9, in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, if this is the case, in this case, excuse me, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Okay, so that's the reality. Paul's, he's laid that out as the reality. Since then, we have such a hope. We are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then you get verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me just make a couple of points about this passage. Obviously, the last verse is like this incredible tying together of everything that we've talked about this morning. Okay? A couple things. Number one, glory. Man, look how strongly it's associated here. We have more image language. We've got more glory language. Point that out. If the old covenant could not bring life had glory, how much more the new covenant have glory? The boldness that he mentions here uh, seems to be that the glory of the new covenant is not veiled. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 to say, and even if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. But the idea is there is a glory of the new covenant that, that, that is being openly and bold-facedly proclaimed. It's not being hidden from view so no one else can see it. That's what Moses did so people didn't freak out. They're saying, no, 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 no. We're, this is not our ministry. We've got a ministry of displaying glory. We have a ministry of preaching and teaching glory. The veil is lifted through Christ. The veil is lifted through Christ. When he says that, he says, uh, he, he's talking about that this inability to see Jesus as the Messiah, the one who has brought the new covenant, that the, the Jews were expecting. They read Moses, yeah, but when they read it, they can't realize what's in front of them, that the fulfillment of it has happened, is what he's saying. Only in Christ is that veil taken away. And so, in other words, it's not merely a problem that they had bad hermeneutical principles. That was part of it, but here's the thing. In order to have the right hermeneutic of the Old Testament as on this side of the cross, you have to have a Christian, explicitly Christian hermeneutic. Christ is the hermeneutical key that unlocks the Old Testament. Okay? And then we have a new covenant that explains the old covenant that, that uh, unpacks what was hidden but is now revealed. Okay? We have this very strong association with the Lord here. Uh, that is to say Christ. That's how Paul, what Paul's referring to. And we have a, the very similar language of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians 15. So remember it said he became a life-giving Spirit? So the language here is extremely strong, right? 
Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now, without, I mean, that's a very strong statement. The Lord is the Spirit. It's puzzled commentators. What exactly is he saying here? The Lord, that is to say Jesus, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, oh wait, okay, it's the Spirit of the Lord. You get that in the next phrase. So which one is it? Is the Spirit identical to the Lord, or is the Spirit of the Lord? The last part, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I'm suggesting that Paul here is saying the exact same thing that he said in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrected Christ became a life-giving Spirit, understood as, not just like this phrase right here, the Spirit of the Lord, indicates, not understood as the second person of the Trinity became the third person of the Trinity, God the Son became God the Holy Spirit, but in His spiritual body, His transformed resurrection body, transformed, glorified by the Spirit, that He functions as a result of being glorified by the Spirit in a spiritual body, that He functions in the life of believers by the Spirit of Christ. And that is what affects union with Christ. That is what affects and creates, you might say, I mean, I don't want to be too crude about it, like it's the glue or something that unites us. I, I, but, be, the, but being united with Christ is caught up in the Spirit. It's caught up in the Spirit of Christ because Christ was raised and transformed by the Spirit. So His ministry through us is in light of the Spirit. So this very, very tight association. It is this very, very tight association. And then it says that the path from bearing the image of the first Adam to bearing the image of the last Adam is one of being transformed into the glorious image of the Lord. The image. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Present progressively into the same image. That is to say the image of Christ, the image of God, we're being transformed into that image from one degree, and the Greek just says from glory to glory, but the ESV gets it right. The idea is from one degree of glory, which we have, to another, this ultimate degree of glory. We are becoming, in other words, more and more glorious as we are restored. And as the glorious image is restored in us, as we behold glory, we become more glorious as we are united to Christ and peer into the glory of God. And as we walk towards and progressively are restored to the image that we lost. And it's not just a restoration of the image we lost. It's something that's going to be far past it. Something far past it. Something that resembles God. When He appears, we will be like Him. Remember that? When He appears... We will be like Him. And so union with Christ then and restoration of the glorious image provides a practical blueprint for sanctification. Okay, It provides the theological underpinnings of it. Sanctification, I would suggest to you, could be theologically described as a project of the restoration of the image of God in us. It's very clearly laid out. That's the game plan from the first Adam to the last Adam. We're promised the end here. 
And there is a process for being renewed, Colossians 3, in the knowledge of God, uh, in, the same, in, in His image. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another because at the end of the day, God wins. We were created in the image of God, and the, what we were created to do will ultimately be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in light of the union with Christ, who bears the image perfectly. So I only have three minutes left, so let me just... Um, let me just ask this question. Uh, we don't have the, you know, we, no, no one's got a tent of meeting in their backyard where they go talk to God and have a, a, a face that glows. Anybody got the tent of meeting? You don't have a tent of meeting. All right. What are some ways then, I mean, if it's true here, if this is the blueprint for sanctification, okay, um, if I behold glory, okay, I become what I have been declared to be. How do we, practically speaking, behold the glory of Christ to progress toward the completely restored image of God that we are promised in Christ? What do you think? So it sounds very good, like the theology is like, oh, great. But you could walk out of here and be like, well, how do I do that? What do you think? What are some, what are some ways that you behold the glory of Christ? One more time, say it. You behold the Word in the Word of God. Okay. This is why we value the teaching and the preaching of the Scripture so much. This is God's revealed His glory in them. And as we peer into the glory of God, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so the, the hope of every pastor who's worth his salt is that, hey, every sermon, there's, I, I contribute to this restoration project that God is working through me to transform from one degree of glory to another the people who are listening. Yeah, so beholding the glory of God in the Word. What else? And so, by the way, I mean, that means you should probably be about, if you have an interest in being transformed from one degree of glory to another, hey, exhibit, this is it right here. You should be spending time in this Word. Yes, sir. You have a question? Yes, sir. Well, you're, well, you know you're progressing towards it because it's guaranteed as a part of the gospel promise. You're united with Christ. You are being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that's the, the, the runway. Everyone, there's a, That's a one-way street. So you don't have to wonder. Right? It's happening. I'm not saying it looks the same in everyone. I'm not saying it looks the same in everybody. And it doesn't. All right, and I would say that by analogy, you might even use some of Paul's language back from 1 Corinthians 15 about things differing in glory in the resurrection because he does tie that into the image. I'm not saying it's going to look the same in everyone's life, but you can already know that you are progressing. It's someone who is, if you are born again. Okay, What else? What are some other ways you behold the glory of God? Yes, sir. Uh, practice, forgiveness. practice forgiveness. Yes, and why? Tell me, just a great answer. Tell me why, though. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to behold others' forgiveness and I want to be about forgiving others as well. I want to, see, I want to taste gospel and then I want to bleed it back out. 
when I'm cut. I want to bleed gospel, grace, and forgiveness. Here's another opportunity to forgive somebody. I cannot wait to forgive this person and show them the kind of love. What an opportunity to bear Christ's image. What else? How else do we behold the glory of the Lord? Yes. You witness it in the lives of other people. You say, God, look what you, I'm, I'm paying very close attention and I'm seeing what you're doing here. And you praise the name of the Lord. It could be in a variety, so many different ways where you see God working in other people's lives and you can't do anything but stand there and say, wow, look at this. Look how awesome this is. It drives you to worship. Anything else? We're one minute over. Oh, we got two here. We'll go two here and we've got to close. Yes. Yes, I absolutely do. So, and I was, and that was one of the answers that I was waiting for is prayer, right? I absolutely think that you can taste the glory of the Lord through prayer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a blueprint. I mean, I think that is a blueprint for talking with God. I mean, in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So prayer, absolutely a way to behold and taste and savor the glory of God. Back here and we got to close. Okay, so natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. I can look around and say, wow, look at what God has done. And, and, and even this is a beautiful world that's still part of the realm of the ruins. And so every time I look at natural revelation and its glory, I remember that, it's, that it still needs to be redeemed. I remember Romans chapter 8, that creation groans, groans for its liberation from its bondage to decay, made possible by the resurrection of the glorious Christ, who in virtue of being united with Christ is renewing in us the image of God that was lost but not totally and is guaranteed to be fulfilled in us one day. Okay? We're three minutes over. Wanted to close with some very practical application because that's about as rich as it gets. Let's... Uh, Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would help us uh, to have eyes to see your glory, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we're so thankful to be the kings of creation, having been made in your image. We're thankful to be united with Christ, who was the perfect image and who is renewing us after the knowledge of the creator so that one day we could bear the image of the man from heaven just as we have born the image of the man of dust. Lord, we pray that you would uh, be glorified in our following service, the preaching of the word, the prayers, the songs, and that everyone here who was able to hear this could particularly focus on the glory that is present and the saints having come together singing and praying and listening to the word, partaking of the supper, so that the image of God could continue to be restored in us one little degree at a time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.